0: And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi for Me Radio is live from the bunker. <laughs> okay, welcome everybody. You know, i have I have all sorts of uh, I have all sorts of notes and reminders to myself to hit the right button at the right time and make sure I've got the winky blinkies and. I'm still on my second cup of coffee, so I'm sure that probably has something to do with it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, those of you who are with us live. We are on Odyssey, Facebook, and YouTube. Live from the bunker, my name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. If you are listening to us as a podcast, we're glad that you're here as well. And uh, if those of you who uh, want to sample the show on... uh, podcast platforms. We're on a number of them. I see we're getting listeners in Romania and France. Uh, nothing in Russia this week, so we'll see what happens there. Mazerus is uh, asking if that's a Miranda class hanging from uh, the ceiling. Yes, it is. I've got a Miranda class back there. I've got, uh, I've got... Let me see here. We've got Reliant, Enterprise, a couple of Klingon ships back there. So... I have to show off my geek cred a little bit, and so uh, that's that's that. All right, so uh, the chat is open, and uh, if you are with us in replay mode, you can leave a comment at the email address for feedback, live from the bunker, it's i5forme.com, and... We have a newsletter you can sign up for. I need to get one out. And, of course, there's all of the socials where you can find us. So, uh, glad to have all of you here. Let's let's dive in because it is Pi Day. Uh, we also need to acknowledge uh, yesterday, William Hurt passed away, age 71, after battling cancer. Uh, so, uh, we'll be... Uh, Having that in our news on Saturday, but now what I want to do, I want to bring in our guest, Cameron Pasha. Is here. He is a writer, producer, pundit. I guess we could add to that, author, uh, Hollywood insider, and, and analyst. Good to have you, sir. You have a lot hey. of you have a lot of hats that you wear these days, right?
1: Yeah, you take every hat that you can get in the world that we're in. So uh, I'm I'm happy to do it, and and it's it's always wonderful to be on your channel. Uh, some of the listeners may remember I've actually been in the studio. I've been in your home. and yes. I was I was visiting your city or near your city, and you mentioned you you were nearby, so I came and you know you were very hospitable and had a lovely time in your studio. It was a lot of fun.
0: And we'll have to do that again next time you're in. Uh, next time you're in Kansas City, definitely get together for uh, tea. Yeah, absolutely. and
1: know you had nice tea there. So, yes, yeah, so and I'm excited to talk to you today. I thank you for being I've been away for a while. You know, I, I actually do have work as a screenwriter. and <laughs> I, You've invited me a couple of times that I wasn't able to come because you know. I had a script due and I've handed that in and now we'll see what happens with that. You know, every time you do a work of art, it's beyond your control. What happens once you finish it right And You yeah. put it out in the marketplace and see what happens. So that's that process has begun. Uh, but now I have a little
0: bit of time to talk. So uh, let me ask you this. Is this project uh, geared toward millennials at all? Well, you know,
1: I, I try to always make everything for everybody because that's just good business, right? I mean, yeah. and so I will tell you that it's it's a horror project, right? It's a it's a ghost story in the vein of the Conjuring kind of thing, based on a true story, um, and uh, based on experiences. Uh, you know, when we met, I was there on a paranormal investigation uh, nearby, right? Uh, right. You know, and uh, so I as. You know, I love the supernatural I, and I, I look into it in my own personal life. And so so one of the things that happened actually when I when I was there, when I was uh, near Kansas City for that for that ghost hunt was uh, I met up at that particular event with two very well-known um, uh, ghost hunters who were sharing a story that they uh, had experienced that was that I listened to and I said, that's really scary. I mean, that's a movie right there. What you went through is scene by scene a movie. Uh, and then I went up and I said, you know, could I make this a movie? <laughs> and, uh, and we started talking and they agreed to it. And, you know, we pitched it to my agents, right? Just like, that's a really interesting story, but you know, I don't think we'll know if we can pitch this. I think people need to see a script. And so I said, all right. So I locked myself down for the last couple of months, uh, you know, and I finished a, a horror script and then I had to have, submit it to the re- the real people to get their approvals. They wanted some adjustments because I'm, Fictionized in their lives, and so I made those adjustments uh, that made them comfortable, and then they were happy with it. And so I sent out. But yeah, it's I mean, like any kind of these ghost stories, it's it's broadly aimed to the whole market. I'm I'm sure what's interesting is we're discovering the market for a lot of the horror stories, particularly the ghost paranormal stories, is actually very Latino. You know, and Hollywood has noticed that, so that's why Paranormal Activity started doing Latino versions, like Spanish language versions of Paranormal Activity, because they started seeing that. The paranormal activity movies had a substantially large Latino American Latino population hmm. watching it. And so that's just the culture. And so we started begun to see this. This one is, a, is actually more of an Eastern European ghost story, uh, you know, with all the events that are happening right now. It, right. It's based on it has legends. It's based on legends and spirits from actually from Russia. Right. And so with all that in the world right now. So. But yeah, that's 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 that project. And I hand it in to my agents. That's the next stage. The first stage was getting approval of the real people. Then when they read the script that this is our lives, the second stage was my agents, which I've given to. And now they have to read it. Hopefully they'll like it. And then you know if they've got notes, I'll address those notes. Hopefully they'll be like it's good to go. And then and then we see what they do next, which is take it out to the big producers like the Jason Blooms and other Bloomhouse and other companies that are making these horror movies. And mm-hmm. the great thing about horror movies is that they're consistently profitable. You know, if you make them, if you make if they're if they're well done, you know, you can make a good horror movie for a couple million bucks, and you know sell it sell it to a distributor for 5 million, then you've got your immediate profit or you, you, or the distributor itself, the studio makes it for, for $5 million and then brings in a hefty profit. When it goes off, it just makes 40 million in the box office. Right. Right. So horror movies have consistently been uh, the entree for all levels of, of the craft, you know, whether you're an actor, a lot of actors got their breaks on horror movies, you know, and uh, a, you know, a lot of them, a lot of directors, James Cameron uh, started off doing piranha and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and so it's, and for writers as well, it's it, it's it's you know it's a way to get your stuff out there. And I just happen to love the genre.
0: Well, and we mentioned William Hurt. His first film was Altered States, which is is sort of in that horror, science fiction, thriller mix. So yeah, everybody everybody kind of dips their toes in there at some point. I mean Jennifer Aniston with Le- Leprechaun. I mean yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah,
1: it's it, it's it's I mean it's it's a rite of passage in many ways. Uh, you know, the very first script that got me my first agent that got me it professional work was a horror movie. <laughs> and so it, it is a rite of passage. And here we are 20 years later. I'm I'm still writing these things. So. Yeah.
0: Now, the reason I ask that just kind of as our entry point here, somebody yeah. posted over on Twitter and I don't know who mm-hmm. this is. This could be just a random comment the whole show or film that pretends it's aimed at kids with a cutesy art style, even though it's clearly just a venting piece made by and for frustrated millennials is one of the worst media trends ever.
1: <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, I don't know how there's much there's to, to that. that.
0: Yeah. There's, there's truth to that. I mean, I've
1: worked, you know, look, I think, and God forgive me for any of the, my friends in the chat who are millennials. I certainly think <laughs> that you're going through, you're going through a lot of challenges in that generation. And uh, I'm generation X born in the seventies. Right. Uh, you know, for me, the 1980s is the height of all pop culture, music, you know? oh, yeah. <laughs> the movies. It, to me, it doesn't get better than the 80s. It just goes downhill from there. But for you, I guess the millennials, 90s and the early 2000s uh, are, are your, your time. And there was some good, good music in the 90s. But I think, I think uh, culture kind of devolved a little bit from its height in the 80s. Uh, and the challenges of the social environment that you were raised in are a little more different than what we latchkey kids and Generation X were raised in. Uh, you were a more protected generation that has time to fight for various ideals. We were a generation that was like our parents are working there's you know in those days you just leave your kids at home till seven o'clock <laughs> when the parents came home and right. you know and the kids would take care of themselves and so we were different we weren't as coddled maybe uh, and our, our focus was not necessarily to try to st- save the planet was just to save our own lives because of what (laughs) we're going through. And that, it actually led to interesting culture, Mm -hmm. but yes, the millennials uh, in Hollywood, it's been an interesting experience because I've worked for millennial bosses, you know, because in the industry, you know, it doesn't in fact in general there's there's a youth orientation right so you know experience is all often looked down upon you know so the moment you hit 40 you know 45 50 you know you're seen as a, this person must be a has-been right and a lot of my friends can't get work now my generation right they were they were big in their time but they during the when they came to this town they were 25 30 and so the town was like yeah young person you must know what the young people want right, right. and so then 20 years later they've got all this experience or very talented people and now the industry is like well okay well you're old folks you know don't know what people want, we're like, but I know how to I know how to run a TV show and how to make a movie. I've done it like 40 to 15 times. Ah, we don't need you. You're not young and hip. And so now the younger generation comes and that's the millennials. And, you know, let's just say a lot of them, you know, it maybe maybe people thought about that about us when we were young kids showing up. But certainly I'm seeing a lot of people that don't have much experience given them being given a lot of power. And learning by making disastrous mistakes, right? right? And I don't recall. I mean, I made mistakes on sets. I screwed up things when I was first time. It's just an experience, right? I've never, but I never had a lot of power. Uh, and but I'm seeing a lot of young people with a lot of power, uh, very specific political agendas to use that power with, and not a lot of success, at least in the sense of making stuff that works. You know, so and and so it's it's an interesting moment I'm watching here. The, a lot of the chaos that we've commented and you've commented on your channel, channel has been a millennial thing where both the Hollywood thinks it's catering to that market, even though it doesn't understand it and doesn't understand the economics of that market. I'm not so sure millennials have a lot of money. You know, it's not the same dynamic, you know, of my generation, which was that you struggled and then you had a little bit of money in your hand in your 20s and 30s right? right a lot of my millennial friends are still living with their parents still trying to make things work it's not the same economics right but the industry was catering to them and catering to their political ideologies and their social concerns and then giving power to representatives of that community who had no experience so it, it led to a lot
0: of the chaos that we witnessed in the last five years so uh, so let me, let me use that as our, as our way of getting to our, our main topic. Young people making pitches and coming in with stories. Julie Benson uh, posted this on Twitter last week. She and her sister were executive story editors on The 100. They're writers. They're producers. They're currently working on Star Trek Prodigy. And uh, Julie posts here. Uh, so Shauna Benson and I pitched, sold a series, but the streamer wants to re-envision. So we're no longer showrunners credited on a three-year labor of love passion project. Contract with the studio didn't protect us. Didn't protect us for this curd ball might be the straw that breaks me from this industry forever. Uh, And she goes on to say that they were brought on to write a pilot for the IP that the studio owned the rights to, developed a pitch with the director, pitched it and sold it, then told by the studio the caveat was the entire team was fired to move forward with Streamer. So yeah, I'm kind of done. Writers, watch your backs. And it sounds like they did... Uh, they did a pitch, and they sold the pitch, and then the streamer decided, we don't need you anymore, we have the idea, we're not even going to give you credit. And I could be reading this wrong, uh, and and I'm sure that there's much more to this, but looking at some of the comments in the thread from other people saying that that kind of thing has happened to them, kind of makes me wonder how, how often this actually happens in Hollywood in general. And... this is different from, say, a situation like Art Buchwald suing over copyright infringement for coming to America, basically saying, hey, you guys stole my idea. This Mm -hmm. is, we hired you, you did all of this work for us, now we're going to fire you, you don't get credit for anything, we're going to do something else am yeah. i am I reading this right? Is that is that what appears to be what's happening in this situation? Well, i
1: I actually have more information on this because you know th- these aren't known writers. I you know, I don't know them personally, but I have friends who've worked with them, right and uh, and so this this actually this this tweet became a me- it became a topic of conversation in the industry for a lot of reasons. And so I was on a screenwriters board uh, that I participate in with other sort of professional writers, and one of them knew them very well and uh, and so shared shared what was happening. Um, and you know, I'm going to share what I know. I, I don't know these people. And so I, I hope I'm not doing anything inappropriate by sharing the information that it's at least being talked about in the industry. So please, if, if Julie and Ms. Benson, you're watching, please forgive me if that's inappropriate, but I want to share what I've heard.
0: Okay. Before you do that, let me, let me also point out, I have reached out to representatives for Julie and Shauna and okay. I said, we're going to be talking about it. And I invited them to come on the show at some point. I'm sure it was too short a notice for anything uh, for today. But that the word is out, hey, we'd like to talk to you about it. So if we hear back from them or if they decide they want to come on the show, then we'll follow up and, and expand on that. But with that having been said, what is it that you've heard? So, you know, from, from what I've heard is,
1: THAT he WAS A SIMILAR SITUATION WHAT YOU'RE DESCRIBING. I KNOW WHICH STREAMER IT WAS. I DON'T FEEL IT'S APPROPRIATE FOR ME TO SAY WHICH COMPANY IT WAS. I THINK THAT'S FOR THEM TO REVEAL. BUT IT WAS ONE OF THE MAJOR STREAMERS. Uh, YOU KNOW, THEY APPARENTLY, YOU KNOW, FROM WHAT I UNDERSTAND, THEY, uh, they YOU KNOW, THEY HAD THIS IDEA. I, I'M NOT SURE IF THE ORIGINAL CONCEPT BELONGED TO THEM OR BELONGED TO THE STUDIO THAT THEY WERE working with i have a feeling i think the studio itself had the underlying rights right and they were brought in as writers and that already put them in a that already put them in a little bit of a precarious position again this is something there this is what we're talking about the young writers right okay so these these are young millennial writers um and uh and minor chinese they're they're good writers uh and they're good people like people who worked with them said they're very nice people right and so uh but they hadn't been through this i've been through having you know, being jerked around, being screwed over so many times. But there's right, another story, right? But right. for them, this was very shocking. And so they, the studio owned the rights, I believe, and they were brought in, and they had a wonderful take that the studio was very impressive. Apparently, they had a director. Uh, they did all of that. And uh, then they pitched it, apparently, from what I understand, quite to quite a few people, you know, quite a few different outlets. And ultimately, this one particular streaming uh, giant decided they liked it. And so they were, you know, they they, they were going to make a deal. And uh, I'm sure these two were very excited because, you know, they're early in their careers. Like they've worked on the 100, which I actually enjoy very much as a show. They're working on Star Trek Pottery. They're early in their careers. But we're also at a stage, a moment, at least we've been for a couple of years, where, like I said, the, the industry thinks the millennials are the future. And so a lot of young millennials are being given showrunner at least credit, even mm-hmm. if they're not always given full authority, showrunner credit at a very early stage. So I've worked with people that jumped essentially from where they are, which is early level writers to running the show. And the experience I had wasn't a good one because the person wasn't ready for that jump. They had, didn't have the experience necessary to manage that. Right. But they certainly, I'm sure, were very excited that this was being offered to them. But you know, I'm currently going through my own negotiation uh, with, with a distribution company over a project, and it's been five months. So it takes a long time, right? And, and there's all kinds of backs and forwards Uh, For these kind of things to make a show. Uh, So I don't know how long theirs took, but somewhere in this process, they were hit with this news that, okay, you know, we, this buyer wants this material, but they don't really want you. And that, I don't know that it was their take. I don't know that it was their, their youth And their level of experience, which the industry is now because we've had a rough couple of years and everyone is financially struggling. Mm -hmm. The industry is now more cautious than it was like in 2018, 2019, when I worked with young millennial bosses who didn't have much experience. Right. So now it may very well be like, well, these people aren't ready. So I they were then told you're not going to be sure on this. I don't know whether what they were offered was. We're going to replace you as showrunners, but you get to keep a credit and you get to be writers in the room. And that's very common. Again, that's not shocking. You know, I think where the shock is this to them as younger people raising in an environment where people of their of their age and their, their experience were being given showrunner abilities and almost was being sort of seen as an entitlement. Right the idea that they could be removed as showrunners was, I think, shocking. That's not shocking to me from my generation because I've had that happen to me, right? You know, you know, I've, I've sold Project to Warner Brothers and then my agent's are like, all right, you know, you're not going to be the showrunner of this, right? And this was after I had like seven, eight years of experience with actual <laughs> television. They're like, you know, you're not actually going to be the showrunner of this. So we'd like you to meet these clients of ours that we think would be really good partners, i.e. bosses for you. You know, we want you to meet the right person that you can work with that will still preserve your vision, but you're going to be a highly compensated producer, et cetera, in the room, but they're going to be the showrunners. I've been through this. It's not fun, but I actually didn't have any expectation knowing even then that eight years of experience wasn't enough in those days for the town. And so I wasn't shocked when my agent said that and 10 years after that, we got a situation where younger people are see their friends being given showrunner things. Right. And so they're like, well, that's what happens. You know, I might have worked in the industry for two years and now I'm going to be the showrunner. I'd worked in the industry almost a decade and I didn't think I was gonna be a show right? Even though I right. certainly had the abilities. Uh, but I that's not how the time worked for my generation. So there they were upset, and they, you know, I believe Ms. Benson tweeted this out. That was what really um, you know, this situation law caused a lot of controversy in the industry, both for what happened to them, because you know, a lot of writers were like, Had this happen to you? And on this board, a lot of writers shared how this had happened to them, right? And uh and then it led to discussions about where the power of writers is. But uh, you know, right now and we can talk about why I think the power of writers has been substantially weakened in the last two years because of various activities taken by our, uh, our guild, the writers guild. We talk about that, but it's the other issue that became the big hot point in the industry for this tweet is that people are like, why are they, why are they doing this publicly? This is going to, this is going to scare people. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, and I've, I'm no longer on Twitter, but I've done tweets that I'm sure people will try to use against me in the future. But this was they're still active on Twitter. Right. And uh, it's this cause, as you saw, there was a large thread of well-known writers responding to them, showing sympathy, all of that. And but so everyone in the industry heard about it. And whenever a tweet goes like that, people start saying, do I want to work with this person? Every If something, you know, because this industry is all about surprise twists and things not going right. That's the norm. Right. So if I hire this person and there's a surprise twist and things don't go the way they want, are they going to tweet it out to the world? Are they going to embarrass me?
0: Well, and, and that's a problem. The other, the other part of that, and and, and I thought about this before, this idea of making certain things public yeah. and the purpose behind them, a lot of times we hear these things coming out as part of a negotiating tactic where it's where you know we're we're going to put this stuff out in order to strengthen our position weaken somebody else's position maybe That's certainly, Yeah, these, this
1: younger generation thinks social media is a leverage tool sure uh it it can be but it's a dangerous leverage tool because you can get something out of it but you've now made an enemy because you've embarrassed them publicly
0: right even though they haven't even though they haven't actually named names on any of this stuff yeah but already like i said i
1: i already know what the streamer is right Right. (laughs) so because the moment you put something like that out publicly people start talking right and the industry everyone is putting on on message boards on facebook and and discord uh what and so the information is out there so i already know and so if i know the the uh the representatives of or of that company know they're talking about them because it got out right so they're like oh you're talking smack about us you know do you want, you know, the reason we we removed you was XYZ. You weren't experienced enough or whatever the the reason was on the streamer's behalf. They're like, and now you're going to try to make yourselves the heroines of this? That's how they're going to react.
0: Yeah. So this is different because when when I think about stuff like this in terms of writer's credits, you generally have those situations where the you have a writing team or a writer that gets hired, they do a first draft, and maybe okay, we don't. We like some pieces of this, but you're not exactly what we're looking for yet. And they they hire some other writers to do a second pass or do a polish yeah. or whatever. And so you get these screen credits where it says written by so and so and so and so and so and and the use of the ampersand, the little and symbol, says this was the team that wrote this particular draft, and you have an and written out as the word. Meaning this person took a pass and then these people took a pass and these people took a pass. And the reason they have all of these different screen credits is because different pieces got used and enough of the material was used that they they get the credit. And from what I'm hearing, you know, just from what I'm reading here, it doesn't sound like they're even going to get a writing credit. So they came in, the studio owns an IP to fingernails. And they come in and they say, "Okay, we've got our take. This is fingernails on a chalkboard," and yeah. they say, "We really like it, really like it, but we're not going to use it. We like this guy over here who says, you know, you uh, uh, fingernail clippers." And yeah. mm-hmm. so, how much does this go into arbitration now? Is this is this possibly where this goes next? Where you know, hey, we did we just spent three years on this? No,
1: no, it. I mean. I don't think so, based on the information that I have. No. It's what it's the situation you described. They, my understanding is there was an underlying IP that the studio owned and was looking for people to give a take on it. So the deal is between because I'm going through this right now in my own project. The, the the deal isn't with me. I already have a contractual deal with the studio on my project. Right. Yeah. So when a particular buyer said so we want to buy this project. So the deal that's been gone on for five months, and I have not—I'm not involved in it at all because I already have my contract with the studio. So show goes. This is what my credit is. This is how much money I get. Blah blah blah. Right. Now the 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 studio and the and the buyer, the distributor, right? In this case, a streaming service, are negotiating between themselves. And their deal has—they're—they're they're, they're not even talking about you know. In my case, I'm talking about what Cameron Pasha is going to get. They're assuming that's already done. They're talking about what's the budget of the of the project you know, we're tired We're going to get blah, blah. They're having their own business discussions, have nothing to do with me. And that's what happened here. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, is that this, that, that streamer said, we love this fingernails concept, <laughs> right? Uh, let's, we, we, we can develop this into something that we can put on our streamer. Uh, uh, you know, we've got probably, probably got people on their own roster that, that they've worked with. They're like, you know, we just want to use these guys. Right. And uh, you know, and so, good luck to your friend and they don't and the streamer doesn't care the streamer's like you know you you handle those two that's your yes your business to the studio because your contract is with the studio when i work in television my contract is with warner brothers studio my contract is with cbs television studios it's right. not with the cw it's not with nbc right it's with universal studios and so they're like you you go deal with that whatever your thing is you got to pay them out whatever that's your problem it's not our problem we don't we just want to work with these other people or we want to redevelop this other way so the the streamer's like we, to them it's You go fix it. It has nothing to do with us. Right. right? And then, as we can see from Ms. Benson's comments, she's upset that her contract essentially had a wiggle room that allowed the suitor to go. "Uh, Looks like we don't need to do nothing for you. It's this is our property. If you are hired to run it, you would be this was the money we would give you. But guess what? You're not being hired to run it. So that's the wiggle room of the contract mm. and so that's what they're outraged about and i think their outrage should really be with their with their attorneys frankly you know their attorneys negotiated a deal that uh had this big gaping hole in the center of it that if it's essentially what we call an if come deal if come deals and i've had if come deals and if come deal is if the show goes then this is what you get so essentially that's what they've got here and The mistake, I think, in this contract was that if the show goes in any form, if this if you sell it based on our pitch and then you then they don't want to use us, we still get X, Y, Z. We still get executive producer credit. We still get a a, we still get a royalty. You, You don't want us in the writing room. Fine. We still get paid this much every episode anyway, because you wouldn't have gotten it to the streamer without us. That's what the so their attorney didn't cover that hole. And. I THINK PARTLY IT'S BECAUSE OF THE YOUTH AND uh, THE EXPERIENCE LEVEL OF THE PEOPLE INVOLVED, YOU KNOW, THEY JUST DIDN'T THINK ABOUT IT BECAUSE THERE WAS ALMOST A PRESUMPTION THAT THEY MIGHT GET PUSHED ASIDE. BUT IT'S A a MISTAKE THAT THEY DIDN'T GET ANYTHING. BECAUSE MY CONTRACTS HAVE, IF YOU, IF THEY DON'T WANT TO MOVE FORWARD WITH YOU, this is what you get. I have those in my contracts because right? yeah. that's a realistic option in any circumstance. They don't want you. Right. I've been in that situation. We like this project. We don't want you. All right. Well, it's what you got to pay me. So, so they're in the contract. They didn't have that. Yeah, so I some, think their, their anger should be with their entertainment attorney who allowed that hole to happen.
0: In some industries, it's called a kill fee. So basically you go up to a certain point. If we decide we're gonna we're going to not move forward anymore. You get it's like a severance package. You you get you get X and so amount of money because we're not doing it. As opposed to this is how much you get if we're doing it. All right. So that raises another question. I want to get to after the break. We're going to take a real quick uh, half a second here, and uh, continue our conversation with Cameron Pasha right after this. Stand by. Our transmitters are made from handwavium. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio.
1: Sci-Fi for Me is about to take you on an incredible journey into the realms of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. Conventions and fandom. Previews and reviews of movies and television. Sci-Fi For Me is working to be the most popular science fiction magazine in the solar system. Subscribe now and enter the fantastic world of Sci-Fi For Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on Sci Fi for
0: Me TV. Back live from the bunker with our friend Cameron Pasha, and we are doing some Pasha analysis, shall we say? I don't know. I'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, question in the chat from uh, Dave asking if uh, there's a historic Hollywood deal that sticks with either of us. I, I'm not familiar with deals. Are you, are yeah, well, there's, I'm there's assuming, the most famous Hollywood. yeah, like the
1: most famous Hollywood deal is the one that's never been reproduced, which is George Lucas and Star Wars and the, and yeah. the toy rights. Right, I mean, because Lucas had gone over budget on the original Star Wars. I believe the final budget was around seven million. I think that's what it was, which in the '70s was a lot of money, right? And uh, and apparently, probably was supposed to be budget under five, and he'd gone over budget, and so he offered them what seemed like a deal that was in the in the in in the studio's favor. I believe it was Fox and the studio. The deal was: look, I will you're right, I've gone over budget. I screwed up. Okay, Uh, but. I'll lower the budget. You know how I'm going to return my my personal fee that you're paying me to to write and direct this thing. So I'm going to do this for free, essentially. Right. The only thing I ask in return for that is something that at the time was a was a meaningless item. Give me the the toy rights to this thing. And, you know, the idea of a sci fi movie no one's ever heard of with characters nobody's ever heard of. Generating Mm -hmm. toys seemed ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this wasn't Disney. This wasn't Mickey Mouse. Right. You know. This is, you know, nobody had made toys out of, out of, you know, and, you, you know, it was, it was the, cla- the classic, the uh, classic Kubrick film, right? Uh, you know, 2001, uh, 2001, no one yeah. made toys out of that, right? So it was like, that's how people were thinking. This is 2001. That's, that's what they had just experienced a few years before. Right. So, and so no one's going to like, uh, and so the deal, the deal was she was like, all right, sucker, sure. Give us back your money. we lowered <laughs> the budget a little bit. We take back your fee. Yeah, you could have these toy rights, you know, toy rights, then are worth billions of dollars because everyone's like, I, uh, people watch the movie. I want a Chewbacca toy. I want toys, of little aliens in the cantina. I want a Darth Vader toy. I want to Luke. like, I want the X-Wings, right? right. And suddenly Fox is like, oh my God, we don't have those. This guy's got those. That deal has never been repeated after that. So once people saw the value toy, rights, you can't get them now.
0: Yeah.
1: Unless you own the underlying property like JK Rowling who controls the toy rights because those are her characters from a work of literature. Right, and so that's her wealth comes from the ancillaries of of, of that, not not from the sales of the books or or, uh, or from the movies. It's from it's from people buying Harry Potter merchandise that she has a piece of.
0: So the the other the other idea that I had here because we had talked about this possibly yep. being a negotiating thing, we've also heard <clears throat> stories a few times where a studio or you know somebody who's got the property they they pay off people who have written a story, we're basically going to buy it in order to lock it up that it can't get done anywhere else. What's I've the possibility? W- could could we be looking at something like that here? You know, They came up with this really great idea based on this IP. We're going to buy it so we can hold on to it because eventually we may lose the rights if we don't develop anything. We don't want it going anywhere else. Is that it, a of
1: it The very first deal that I went through in the industry was similar, but with a more nefarious attention. Uh, I've written about this on my Patreon. Uh, the, uh, the very first deal that I had in this industry, at least was offered to me, was back in 2002. Uh, it was a deal for a crusade script that I'd written. Uh, and it was at the same time that Ridley Scott had announced he was doing Kingdom of Heaven, but he didn't have a script yet. So, it was, so everyone was like, does anyone have a crusade script? Well, I, like, I have one. It's just been finished. It was really good. And a major producer and a major studio made a bid on the project. And I was so excited because here's my big career break. I'm gonna go up against Ridley Scott, right? And, and it was a it was a studio film that had been set up to the Crusades. They just had never found the right writer. And they'd gone through a couple of years of scrap scripts that weren't working. And now my script shows up, it's actually really good. And suddenly I get the you know, this call from the top producer and the studio. And then when I get the offer, it was, the offer was a little bizarre. Cause I was very excited. I was like, I just, I sold this. You know, it's a hundred million dollar crusades movie. I'm going to get at least a couple hundred thousand bucks for the script. Right. Yeah. Right. That's minimal. Right. For a scale movie of that. And so then, but we get the offer. It's a bizarre offer. It's an offer for a $5,000 option on the underlying material. I was like, that makes sense. If you don't have a studio involved, it's just a producer saying, I want to option your material so I can take it to studios. You've got one of the biggest movie studios in the world that's, I've been de- trying to develop this concept for two years, and they're budgeting their version of it to $100, $150 million. Why would you pay $5,000 for that? And uh, that was a very bizarre thing. And my agents at the time, was for my first deal. My agents were like, just take it, man. This is your break. Just take it. Was, it doesn't feel right. And then the miraculous thing that happened is a friend of mine was working as an assistant at that production company. He called me and he said, they'll fire me if they find out I'm calling you, but I'm telling you, don't take this deal. I was like, what, what's happening? He's like I'm. He's an assistant, so he's sitting there. He's like I'm sitting in the in the meeting in the meeting today, taking notes. And the boss was like, "This Cameron Pasha script is really good." But but its themes are very controversial for what we want to do, because it was it was about Saladin, the Muslim hero of, mm. uh, of the Crusades. Right. It was about it was from his point of view. So it was from the Muslim point of view. And Richard Leinhart was the villain of the project. And they're like, this was this was politically against what they wanted to do. But they were afraid that other studios they knew were interested. It was floating around and they're like, we have to get this off the market. It's a good script. It will compete with ours. And we don't like its political messaging, Right. right. So we're just going to pay a little bit to this young nobody kid Control the rights and bury it permanently so it never gets made by anyone else. And I said, oh, OK, yeah, I'm not going to fall for that. Right. Uh, and so I said no. And then I, we, my agents got all these threatening calls from the from the producer saying this kid better give me the rights because he was so scared that his project would die. He didn't want to make mine. didn't he liked the script he didn't like the the vibe of it because it wasn't the the agenda wasn't what he wanted to do he's like i'm never gonna let the script happen and so i went this is the first thing i went through i don't know that they they went i don't you know that was just the politics of hollywood right now i ended up turning that script into a novel my shadow of the swords novel which i published with simon schuster five years later so it, it worked out right but but that was my first lesson on the politics of this town so it is certainly one plausible thing. I don't know that their take, especially there was no underlying script, they just pitched something that, you know, so I don't know that their take would have been so controversial or anything like that. That would be the reason to bury It may simply be that, you know, it feels like this underlying thing, whatever it is. I mean, I have no idea what this underlying thing is. Maybe maybe they have Dungeons and Dragons, or well, some <laughs> underlying property that's a value that someone, that the this, that this streamer may, may very well be like, yeah this is really valuable. These are young and people. We don't need them. Let's hold on to it so nobody else gets this. And let's put our people on or let's wait until we have the appropriate people from our point of view. So certainly that, that weighed into it, whether they plan to make this project or not, they needed to get these people out yeah. uh, so they could control it.
0: Which kind of seems a little surprising to me because given the, 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 the track record that they have with the 100 on their resume and with Star Trek Prodigy, Granted, they're not huge, mega million dollar productions, but there's some consistency there because, you know, The 100 was a popular show and, and, you know, well received for the most part for that particular age group, I would guess, you know, if they're going after millennials. But then you also have, um, you know, Star Trek Prodigy, which is aimed toward a younger audience, but it's also reaching the older demographic Star Trek fan who are sitting here thinking this is the best of all of the new Trek. Uh, these these people actually get it. Mike uh, Mike McMahon actually gets it uh, right. over what's going on. So it's not it's not as if the Benson's are unproven, but it's just the they're, fact they're that they just haven't as been show doing. Runners.
1: They're not unproven as writers. They're obviously talented writers. They're unproven as managing a multi million dollar corporation.
0: Were they right? show Were they show runners on the one hundred? No, right. I don't believe so. Okay, cuz exe- so executive story editor has now morphed is not the same oh, anymore. no. Executive right? story editor is uh, that if
1: that was their title. Uh, that's the absolute bottom of the barrel. I mean, there's only one level below that, which is staff writer, right? Okay. So so the, the the industry in television staff writer, story editor, executive story editor. So they weren't even producer level. That's the considered the the line, the story editor line, which is just your writer for hire on the show and you're not even given producer level responsibilities. This the quantum leap and I went through this when I jumped from executive story editor to producer, I had it was in my contract on a particular show uh, where I started off as executive story editor on a show. And uh, then this, if the show got a second season, my contract, my lawyer had had my lawyer's agents had put in. If you get a second season, he jumps up to producer, which is the threshold. The next level is yeah. producer. But it's very hard, to, at least in those days, it was very hard to cross that threshold. It's, they kind of like to block you there. Right. Yeah. And so when it happened. And the second season happened, the showrunners uh, of that particular show, who, let's just say that, you know, weren't always the most socially uh, (laughs) adept people, they actually, they said to me directly when they found out. They didn't know because it wasn't their contract. I come back for the second season and then they're like, why does this guy have a producer credit, right? I was like, what's in my contract? And they're like well we wouldn't have given that to you you know you're young you're not ready right i was like well too bad i got it <laughs> too bad that's my deal you're stuck with it it had nothing to do with you that's the studio gave it to me it was my deal a year ago sorry you yeah. know it wasn't kind of ungracious thing to say but it kind of pissed me off but but then i went on and had to take on certain producerial responsibilities that i wasn't necessarily ready for and i learned by making <laughs> mistakes on the set and whatever and so that you know they weren't completely wrong yeah. you know and the idea of me going from executive story editor to running the show—I mean, I've barely been on set, right? I mean, and so that that level is is at, is considered bottom tier, not in the sense of quality, but just in the, the hierarchy of the industry of, right. of the television industry. And so and they are, but a couple as, of years ago, they, people like that were being given yeah. showrunner status to disastrous results, as I experienced. You know, they were being given that, and they're like, they don't know what they're doing. But they they were the young, hip people, and everyone's like, equity, you've got to give the young people what they deserve, and like, they haven't earned it yet. They don't know what they're doing. so
0: it's kind of It kind of reminds me of what's been going on in the comics industry of late, where where a lot of the editorial staff are these young 20-somethings that uh, they, they may be full of energy and ideas, but they're not exactly uh, uh, running over with experience, and... It shows, and some of the quality of the stories that are being told in the in the pages of the comic books. Now they do have a co-producer credit on uh, Prodigy, as well as something called Woo Assassins from 2019. So a little a little bit of experience under their belt, but yeah, like I said, probably not all that much uh, to to do this. So <clears throat> at this point, let's say let's say uh julie and shauna benson come to you and they say camera what do we do about this what's our what's our next what's our next move what do you think they're going to do at this point just based on what you know
1: well i think that um they're getting feedback from the industry you you might want to get this off of twitter so i think they're probably not going to put further uh conversations about their future on this on twitter right um I certainly hope for their sakes, because everything I've heard is they're good people and they're very talented and they deserve a long career and you don't need to be um, have a target on you in from social media, you, certainly at this stage in your career. You just don't need it. And I and I hope that they're going to be OK. Um, you know, I, I think that there's legally nothing they can do. The contract had the whole they don't own the underlying property. They weren't JK Rowling. They didn't own the book or whatever it was that the underlying property is. So what are they going to do? I mean, they're, they're, the contract's a whole, you know, I'm you know. <laughs> one thing that was discussed in the in the online circles that i saw discussing it was had they not made this public drama the odds would have been that the that their agents could have gotten something as a go away right even though there right. wasn't a contract that with the threat that you don't want to making online drama but they made the online drama before they got that right so it kind of blew that and so you have leverage a little bit of leverage today of, of the fear of people you know saying you've mistreated a woman Right, you mistreated a minority. You mistreated a bipoc. Whatever. You have that, and you have that leverage to scare people off, so that they, they resolve things. Um, you know, when uh, you know, I've been very open to the fact that I I was the head writer on the Tron uh, animated series, Tron: Uprising, and then I was fired. Right. right. Uh, and uh, but Disney paid out my entire contract for the full year. Right. Partly because I didn't make any drama about it. I said I'll leave quiet. i will make drama about it. In Ten years later, it doesn't matter. Right. But at the time, I was like, all right, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to talk about the fact that I felt I wasn't well treated in this environment and that you're making mistakes here. Right. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Right. And they paid me out. Had I, you know, because, well, I guess back in the, this was 2010, internet, Twitter was around. Right. I mean, the Facebook Mm -hmm. was certainly around. And so, uh, you know, I was like, had I been making drama online, I would have probably injured myself and might not have gotten that. Here's your, here's we'll pay out your entire contract. Just go away. And so that's the lesson.
0: Okay, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And like I said, we have reached out to representatives from both for for both uh, Julia and Shauna Benson. And I gotta say, I saw when I saw Julie Benson post and, and this thing uh, came across the transom last week. For whatever reason, I don't know why, I keep getting Julie Benson and Julie Pleck m- mixed up. <laughs> I was like no this is not julie black Julie I've, Black. i've worked with i've worked with julie worked black with julie. i and yeah. so yes i know her place. yeah and i was like no this is not the producer of, of vampire diaries i this is a completely different No, no, this is, than, this is this
1: is so, a younger uh, this yeah. is a younger writer and uh, and from what i understand a very talented writer so
0: so let me let me switch gears here for just a second in our, in our last couple of minutes here because I don't want to spend too much time because this is actually one of those shows where we've got Cameron Pasha and he's not talking about Lucasfilm and Star Wars and all of the mess that's over there. Um, but let me ask you this because on Wednesday we got the, the investor call on Disney, we got the, the, the Kenobi trailer, all of the stuff that went out. And in the middle of all of that... Paramount Plus drops the Strange New Worlds trailer on the same day. And I'm thinking, somebody in marketing over at Paramount Plus is not on the ball. Because everybody's talking about the Kenobi trailer. And of course, subsequent to the investor call, everybody's talking about the whole mess in Florida. With, yeah. you know, now now they're, they're insisting that Disney pack up and move everything out of Florida. Which we all know is not going to happen.
1: Yeah, but that but that's the kind of rhetoric you're going to get at the stage and and when right. you take it to the stage. That that w- that was what Mr. Chapek was trying to prevent because you know again the employees weren't thinking that out. You know, yeah. the employees just wanted their outrage and they're like, you know, you don't want you, you don't want these politicians to shut down our business. But but, but now whatever.
0: you've got now you got people saying, you know, Chapek bent the knee because he came out with that other memo and all of this now there's all of this, you know, there's blood in the water basically. Yeah. Um yes. Now, Valiant Renegade did a video on this, and he pointed out that there are actually two pieces of legislation in Florida. Mm -hmm. One of them is the one that everybody is blowing a gasket about, this so-called Don't Say Gay bill. But then there's the other one that nobody's talking about, the Anti-Woke bill is how it's being characterized. Mm -hmm. And Disney hasn't taken a position on that one, apparently, and... Some people are thinking it because you know.
1: the, uh, the other one is more of an emotional trigger as
0: you know, it,
1: it, you know, the Matthew baloney on the, on the very up and coming and interesting uh, news site Puck. right. I think it's right. really going to become a very important website over time. They're already breaking news. They, bro- they broke uh, you know, the, who was going to be the, the new head of CNN before everyone else. So puck is a very interesting site and Matthew baloney, uh former editor in chief of the Hollywood reporter runs that. And he just put out a piece last night about, about what happened here um, with Disney. And, you know, it, his sympathies are with the employees in the situation politically. he's very he's very left, and he's very open about that, but he's a good reporter. Yeah. Uh certainly gets a lot of information. and so but he made the point in his article that uh, that J-Pack, you know, is essentially taken hostage by by the employees. And because the creatives, particularly at Pixar, there's a lot of people uh, from the LGBT community. there's a lot of people that are very sympathetic to uh, uh, at least the activists within that community. And, you know, so this was something that they essentially did an insurrection and rebelled against him. And even Bologna admits that, you know, and like I said, Bologna very left and he he sympathetic, he very much hates this Florida bill and presents it at, in a certain way and how yeah. he writes about it. But it's his view is that these, you know, that Chapek was trying to get the company towards just the center, not towards the right, just to the center and going back to just doing business away from the very left position that Iger brought it to. And it's hard to do that when your employees are rebelling against you. So Chapek is in a very difficult situation because essentially you had people like Pixar openly putting out garbage against him and saying all kinds of things about him and, you know, putting those out in tweets yeah. and attacking the boss. And so, you know, I think that he felt the best thing right now is to fall on my sword. If I, this is my instinct, if I were Bob Chapek, he's a survivor. He survived 30 years plus in Disney, outsmarted a lot of people, and outsmarted a lot of people when he became CEO, right, in ways that shocked people. Even Kevin Feige came out and said last year that he had underestimated Bob Chapek when he tried to he tried to get him overthrown last year. He sort of allegedly instigated Scott Johansson's lawsuit over, over, over earnings from Black Widow, and then they settled that real fast, which kind of left... Feige out in the dust, right? And then right. he came out publicly and said, I underestimated Chapek. Uh, so I don't think you should underestimate Chapek. I mean, I've written about this on my Patreon. Uh, I understand why he had to make his public apology. Uh, I do think it weakened him, uh, it, you know, because now th- the enemies smell blood because he hasn't publicly apologized for anything in the past, right? right. Uh, and he's now, he's now they smell blood and they're going, they are pushing. You're saying they're not going to stop. They want him out, right? They want him out. They want an Iger type person back that that shares, their philosophy. Um, I don't know that he's out. If I'm Chapek and I'm a survivor like he's proven to be, he now knows who his adversaries are. He now knows that people inside Pixar will publicly insult him, right? He now knows who they are. And if I were him, or if I thought like him, I would be continuing to say all the right things in public, which he's doing, right? Right things in the sense to keep these employees happy and privately creating a list of people that need to be let go in the next year and then getting human resources to find stuff against them
0: right what, what are the because odds that's a problem. <laughs> what are the odds they sell pixar uh, I mean that's that's a wild speculation. I, know I mean that's the wild thing. Not, I mean but- I, if I if I
1: if I were if I were Disney, I'd get rid of this thing, right? They're always There, that's you know that's not working out for them. And the fact is, they're putting a lot of Pixar stuff on Disney Plus. They're not putting it out theatrically, which is one of the reasons Pixar employees are angry. With Mr. Lasseter no longer there, John Lasseter was the visionary behind Pixar. Uh, I think it's fair to say the quality of the material coming out of Pixar has gone down since Mr. Lasseter left. I think that's objectively true. No. Uh, I I love Pixar films, and now I don't really watch them anymore. And uh, and I think that's true. For a lot of people and disney noticed that it's not putting them out in the theaters uh, it's putting them straight to, to disney plus so i think it w- you know certainly in in mr chapex machiavellian mind the most extreme action would be well all just get rid of this rebellious ship just you you, you want this re- you know this whole this whole province is rebelling i'll just get rid of it i'm just gonna i'm just gonna declare the border stops here you part of the other country now you go deal with that right, right. i mean <laughs> instead of having to deal with the rebellion I mean, I don't know that he'll take it that far. He has to find a buyer for it. It's a lot easier to step by step go through the employee roster and remove them, right? And right. wait patiently. You don't want it if you fire people tomorrow, they'll be like, You removed us for our politics on this. If he fires people nine months from now, not as easy to make that claim. And I think that's what he's planning.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh the C Man says Disney has a choice. Support their core their core audience of families or pander to the online activists. And lose their audience and we're starting to see some of this you know there's been some discussion online I mean Ron DeSantis even comes in and says you know Mm -hmm. hey you know this is supposed to be the the family friendly company that's that's producing all this content Um, and and it feels like there's kind of a pendulum swing going on politically but well
1: well, there is but there's not a swing yet inside the industry and the problem is that a place like Disney Mr. Iger's greatest damage, I mean, he did a lot of damage to this company, he did a lot of damage into how it made story, did a lot of damage into how they handled their business. But the the worst damage he did, I think, was that he staffed this company with a lot of crazy ideologues over the last decade because it was the cool thing to do. He was like, he was looking, ah, that guy's good. He just brought, because that was where culture seemed to be. And, right. oh, they made a lot of anti-Trump comments, hire them, right? That's where culture seemed to be. And now they're there. Now they're there and their goal isn't even to make movies. Their goal is to agitate for social issues. Like these Pixar people aren't trying to make good stuff. They're just agitating. You're not letting us put enough LGBTQ stuff in our in our movies. That's what they're agitating about. They're not agitating about, you're not letting us write good scripts. <laughs> they're not <laughs> agitating about that, right? And so uh, so he's he's how do you run a company that's filled with these people now that Mr. Iger put in there that wasn't the nature. When I went there, when I worked there 10 years ago, the company was just standard fake liberal Hollywood company. He said all the nice things, blah, 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 We support this group, whatever. And then mm-hmm. privately was ruthless and and the ultimate corporate Machiavellian place, right? That's what I experienced. Now it is a corporate Machiavellian place with actual ideologues in there. So it's a bad situation for Jay Packer.
0: Do you think that this does harm to his relationship with Susan Arnold? No,
1: not at all. Not in the slightest. Okay. I believe this. his actions with regard to this – when he was trying to get the company out of political involvement were endorsed and pushed by Ms. Arnold because that's who she is. Ms. Arnold is not an ideologue. She, is, she was, also wasn't appointed by Iger. She came to the board before all of these characters and that Iger put in there, right? She is, she is a long-standing, successful woman who's risen up the ranks. Major companies like Procter & Gamble, major companies like the Carlyle Group, which invests billions of dollars for presidents of the United States, right? She's... She And she rose up as a lesbian woman, LGBTQ woman, rose up through this ruthless, merciless Wall Street world to where she is. So she sees the world exactly as it is. And I am absolutely convinced, it was her saying to Chapek, we need to get this company in the middle. I want to be able to sell stuff to as many people as possible at Disneyland, right? I don't want any more of this, uh, and I don't want you getting involved in this. I do not believe that Mr. Chapek would have done a hands-on, hands-off, I'm going to stay away from this, knowing his boss is herself LGBTQ? Knowing that, he would not have done that without a direct conversation with her and her go-ahead and permission. And I'm sure that when the PR situation turned bad, because this industry on that issue is very, let's just say, that's a red line issue. Like you said, even the woke is not a red line, yeah. but that's a red line because there's a, quite a few members of the, that community in Hollywood in positions of power, and they're very sensitive to a, the belief that it, the world might turn against them, right? And, they, and so that's, that issue is a red button issue for the industry, for a mm-hmm. lot of people to work here personally. And so, and they acknowledge that. They acknowledge that in his press releases on the topic that we have a lot of people, employees that are from this community or care about this community and all that. So hey. I'm sure he acted on Ms. Arnold's behalf and I'm sure his apology was instructed by her. She said, okay, this is time for a strategic retreat now. Right. Because I don't think she's, sim- I think whatever her personal opinions may be of the Florida legislation, she knows that it's bad business for Disney to get involved in it. I'm hundred percent sure it came from her.
0: Well, and and Dave Dave points out in the chat. He says the Susan Arnold I'd work with at, at Procter and Gamble was extremely professional. And he's got extremely in all caps there. And that's her reputation. She's not a joke. Well, and and the other part of that too. I mean, people have pointed out Disney or Bob Iger's uh, Disney taking a position on. Uh, the floor, the, the Georgia abortion legislation from a couple of years ago, and and of course the China thing has become another hot potato recently again, uh, because somebody you know somebody brought it up in the in the investor call and started raking them over the coals and say, hey, what do you what, what about all of this? Of course, all of that happened under Iger's watch, yeah. which Chapek could throw Iger under the bus and say, you know, that was all him. I didn't even, i'm I'm trying to fix all of this and I, I I don't know that that's a winning strategy, but um it might be one of those things where you know maybe Chapek has to has to Acknowledge mistakes of past leadership in order to get out from under this cloud. Would that work? It, it, it's it's a, the problem
1: is this: the past leaders have left behind this fifth column inside the company. Mm. That that's the problem. So acknowledging the past mistakes are acknowledging that all these people at Pixar, you know, are are essentially insurrectionists and were put in there by someone. So what did he do? I mean, he has been acknowledging. He's been hinting that we're moving away from the Iger world, but that's the threat to everybody there. So I'm going to give you the other example the the counterbalance example of what we're seeing how something else is being handled. So this is Bob uh, Bob Chivik attempting to to steer the company away while have, have company filled with people that are adversarial to him by his predecessor, right? The opposite situation is what we're seeing right now with David Zosloff, the CEO of Discovery, whose company is now taking over Warner Media. Right. And you're not seeing because he's already come in and said, you know, he had Jeff Zucker fired the head of CNN, one of those powerful people in the world. He had him fired. Right. And they're buddies. They go golfing together. He's like, now this guy's this guy's this guy's brought ratings down to 90 percent. Get him out. Right. And so and I know for a fact, a lot of television studio execs of Warner Brothers. I've worked at Warner Brothers multiple times. The execs have, I know have have resigned in fear of what Zaslav is going to do. He's going to come in. He's going to fire them. Right. Because he's going to put his own team in there. People that that are focused on, you know, making money and, and less on. Um, Making political statements in, you know, I work on CW, which has become more and more of a let's say woke network in the time that I've worked there, right? And so a lot of those people are like, okay, we're not going to be welcoming this. But look at what's happening. They're not trying to start an insurrection. He's not he's not even there yet. They're just leaving. They're fleeing. They're fleeing because they know when he comes in, he's not coming in like Bob Chak. Bob Chapek came in appointed by members of the board. That were unhappy with Bob Iger, what I've heard done this. And he was brought in as essentially an, a surgical instrument to try to fix this thing by people who were large, influential inside the company. Yeah, That's not David Zaslav. David Zaslav is not a surgical instrument. He's a sword. He's coming in. He's No one's appointed him. He's only, he built discovery up into this mega lift and using that power to buy Warner Brothers, Warner Media. He did that. There's not the slightest bit of doubt that he's in charge. and He's not answering to anybody except the major shareholders. Right. Who like what he's doing. Right. And so that's the uh, that's the opposite. David Zaslav, you know, even if, let's say, Bob Chapek falls on his sword. Maybe I don't think that's going to happen. But let's say Bob Chapek is pushed out over this. It's possible. It's not impossible. And Disney will then be in a very bad situation as essentially Uyghurs, an Igerite will be reappointed, right? To keep those employees happy and the company's revenues will continue to go down. The ship price will go down as the people in the chat are pointing out. It's just gonna be if you choose these ideologues versus your customers, well, the customers are gonna leave. And but Susan Aro knows that. But Bob Chapek doesn't have necessarily the power to fight that if that's where the, the, the wave goes. Whereas David Zosloff will be like, it's my company. You don't like what I'm doing with it? You're out. That's why people are fleeing now. No one's trying to organize a don't let David Zaslav take over Warner Brothers because they know they won't be able to do that. And they're going to be all fired. they're not even trying this direction. They're just running for the hills uh, and uh, in advance. This is basically Mongols. Genghis
0: Khan is coming. Just go. (laughs) And that deal apparently has passed the um, the Discovery shareholders have Mm -hmm. said, yeah, we're okay with this. So we're we're looking at Warner Media Discovery becoming a thing possibly in April, I think. Uh, so uh, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that one as well, and I'm sure you'll be writing about it on your Patreon blog, which uh, we do have a link in the chat. And uh, do you want to you want to direct anybody to your Instagram or just the Patreon? Is
1: that
0: well, people can call
1: people can also find me on Instagram. I think a link. Because they're well, you know, I don't post a lot on there, uh, you know, and uh, people DM me and I don't often see those DMs. So best way to actually reach me is is my Patreon because I do a lot of this analysis. I say a lot of things I can't say publicly. It's a private thing there to have to join. And, you know, I also do consulting on there for people who are screenwriters or, or novelists, people. I've consulted about 30 people on the Patreon so far where they've submitted me their scripts or even their books, right, and uh, or their short stories. And I've worked out uh, higher level patrons get substantial discounts. My normal consulting services. So far, people seem very happy with them and keep coming back for more. So that speaks for itself. But yeah, the link is there. That's the best way that you can reach me because I'm posting pretty much every day, and I'm, people can DM me there directly. And uh, and so
0: it's it's a good way to stay in touch. Okay, and we will continue to stay in touch and and have you back for more analysis and discussion on various different topics, not just Star Wars, because Cameron Pasha is a very smart man and uh, has has a lot of insights and, and we're happy that you uh, share them with us here so we will definitely do this again I want to thank everybody for uh, being here all of you in the chat good to see you as well and again if you are seeing this in replay you can leave your comments and uh, of course the, li- the, uh, the, the email address live from the bunker at sci-fi for me dot com if you want to suggest a topic or tell, tell us if you've got somebody that you think we should invite uh, to have a discussion with and we will continue to see if we maybe we can get uh, Julie and Shauna in here to talk a little bit about some stuff and we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it uh, on this and a number of different things. And you can keep an eye on us through uh, the social media. We're on 10 different platforms or on four different video platforms. There's a newsletter. Uh, if you are inclined to uh, support us financially, we've got a PayPal tip jar and a subscribe star account. And, uh, Uh, You can support us that way if you are so inclined. In the meantime, if you are brand new, we do invite you to subscribe to the channel and uh, feel free to share this or any of the other videos that we've got out. And uh, we'll be back to do this all again tomorrow. Uh, Tonight, we've got the H2O podcast at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central. And I will leave you with this quote attributed to Alex Haley. Either you deal with what is the reality or... You can be sure that the reality is going to deal with you. And we will leave you with that. Remind you that there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.